0: previously on Maverick.
1: The crazy thing that was spreading through the rumor mill was that small house churches were growing and multiplying in some of the hardest to reach places in the world. It turned into the largest global survey of Muslim movements to Christ ever conducted. And what I discovered was that more Muslims had come to Christ than at any time in history.
2: We are living in the time of potentially the greatest expansion of the kingdom of Jesus that has ever happened.
0: When I think of missions, it's hard not to picture West Africa as sort of the quintessential place. For hundreds of years, the gospel has been growing and thriving there. There are cities full of churches and seminaries and millions of Christians. It's easy to look at West Africa and assume the work there is done. And it's hard to see how a place like that fits into these rumors of new movements among unreached people. But things are never as straightforward as they seem. And that was made very clear when about 30 years ago, missionaries made some new discoveries that changed everything about how they thought of the region. You're listening to Maverick, and this is West Africa. When you picture West Africa, you really need to see it in terms of geographical regions that are marked by barriers. The Atlantic Ocean creates a barrier on the west and south, Then there's the huge Sahara Desert, which acts like another kind of ocean separating West Africa from the Mediterranean. And then you have the dense jungle of the Congo that insulates West Africa from the rest of the continent. And these geographical features have done more than just shape the land of West Africa. They've shaped culture and history.
1: West Africa has sort of uh, three zones, if you will, geographically. There's the coastal zone, which was colonized by Europeans, Portuguese, uh, French, British colonizers and they have their cities there, their trading posts and it's really along the coast that most of the economic prosperity has taken place. Oil has been discovered, uh, it's where trade takes place so with the outside world. And then you move a little farther and you get these savanna lands which have been areas of farming and nomadic and semi-nomadic peoples. The interior, the people are turned in their direction more toward the Sahara because it was across the Sahara that their religion came, their religion being Islam. And it came through the caravan routes that uh, set up outposts uh, along the edge of the Sahara.
0: So the people living closest to the Sahara are Muslim. Those living in the Savannah are tribal and nomadic. And those living on the coast are more westernized.
1: You know, for really several centuries, missionary effort has been limited to the peoples on the coast you know there was enough work there there were tens of millions of peoples who needed the gospel and missionaries found uh, you know ready audiences people who were responsive and as a result uh, among those people they planted churches they started colleges and seminaries and grade schools and, and it just flourished
0: And it was because of all that flourishing that missionaries thought countries like Nigeria were reached. But they were thinking in ways that were oversimplified. They thought in terms of reaching entire countries. What they didn't understand were the many cultural boundaries the gospel faced before it ever reached another country's borders.
1: We assumed that we were reaching the whole country until we began looking at it in terms of language, and people groups, ethno-linguistic communities. We realized that Nigeria was the largest country in Africa and there were hundreds of distinct language communities in Nigeria and over 90% of our work was among one people group, the Yoruba people. As we began to look at that country and see it the way it saw itself, not as a political nation, but as a broad federation of tribes and languages and communities that had all agreed to submit themselves to the political entity of Nigeria, but they still maintained their core identity as Futafulbe and Fulani and Hausa and Bambara and uh, Igbo and other people groups. So what we've discovered in the last 30 years is that 90% of the world Christian resources were going into 1 or 2% of the people groups in West Africa.
0: And those boundaries between people groups have made it possible for Islamic people of the interior to be almost entirely isolated from the gospel, even though they live in a country with millions of Christians. So as these new discoveries were made, a great redeployment began. Missionaries had a new focus on individual people groups, new languages and new frontiers, and new workers who are willing to go into these hardest-to-reach places.
2: Hey, my name is Chris Klayman. I have, over the last couple of decades, had the opportunity to explore much of Muslim West Africa. I spent some time in Mali, I ended up moving among unengaged, unreached people groups called the Wassalu, and the Wasalu numbered a hundred something thousand people. At that time, no Christians seeking to try to reach them or living among them, no missionaries for sure.
0: And the isolated, unreached villages like the one Chris lived in are a far cry from the West African coastal cities. Not only was Chris in a place where the gospel had never been, he was living in a place where few outsiders had ever been.
2: So even when I lived uh, among the Wasalu, it was a small village at the time that had no stores, uh, no market. You would walk eight kilometers to the the market that would happen once a week at another town. Uh, there were, there was no electricity, no running water. And for someone like me as a, as a white American, uh, I was, There was no television. I was television for the people. And so I would have these kids that would follow me everywhere. I'd go into my little mud hut and I would seek to read the Bible or read a book for a while. And I'd have eight kids walk with me inside of my home and just sit there and watch me read. And I would explain to them, you know, I'm gonna gonna read right now. They said, that's okay. And they would stare at me for a while.
0: And while that kind of attention may seem like an overwhelming inconvenience, Chris said it was actually one of the biggest platforms for sharing the gospel, because as they would watch him, they would see someone who lived differently, and it's pretty incredible what can happen when Christians are willing to step into unreached places and live differently.
2: Really, it was much like the New Testament, where your witness uh, was your lifestyle. It was being watched and living out the gospel in front of people and how you reacted to conflicts and how you would utter truth and wisdom from scripture to help handle everyday life situations your ability to love and forgive and show mercy and grace and then in the midst of that bring truths of scripture to people. I liken it much like how Jesus would tell parables or give pithy points of wisdom as he's going around and walking with his disciples. In many ways, it matters just as much who a message is coming from than the message itself. Sometimes there really is no message without the proper medium or messenger who they highly regard and value
0: and being highly regarded and valued means something very different in a place like West Africa than it does for us here in America.
2: There's not really an equivalent for us Americans to understand, but your belonging in a place like West Africa does not come through your individual accomplishments, through your independence, through your success or education or work. Uh, in the post-enlightenment Western world we live in, we say, we think, therefore we are, you know, the, the Descartes phrase. Well, in West Africa, they would say, we belong, therefore we are. We belong to a group and truth is really not what you individually believe in. Truth is what the group believes. So you might even have some inner convictions and different thoughts of how things should be or what is truth, but you would never act on that because it's not what the group believes. So it is a huge, huge decision for someone to become a follower of Christ from one of those contexts. Whenever they make a decision to follow Christ, uh, it often comes through either some sort of miraculous dream, vision, healing in the name of Jesus, or it's been a long process of them counting the cost and seeking a deep, deep understanding of the word of God and the way of of Christ followers and what is family like uh, as a follower of Christ and what's gonna replace really my whole life that could be lost as a result of this decision.
0: And for one man named Musa, it was a combination of experiencing the miraculous and a journey of counting the cost that ultimately brought him to Jesus and eventually to Chris
2: Musa Zawassalu man was a strong muslim he actually had had prophecies that he was going to to lead their people in religious ways well when you grow up among a group like the wasalu in west africa there's only one religious way and it's islam and so as a maybe a 20 year old he has this major sickness where he's in and out of a coma The doctor actually said that Musa had around one week left to live in his estimation.
0: And so Musa found himself in a hospital bed, just sort of waiting out his death. And during that one week he had left to live, Musa had a dream.
2: And in the midst of this vision, Jesus appeared. Now he has never seen the Bible before, never met a Christian. But in this dream, he has an Ezekiel 37, Valley of the Dry Bones type experience. He's standing outside of his body and he's looking over a valley of dry bones. And Jesus comes and appears in the valley and says, Musa, do you want to live? He says well of course i want to live but i'm looking out over this valley and all that i see is death including musa saying he sees his own bones he's dead jesus says well if you believe in me not only will you find healing in this life but you will find life for eternity now we would hear that and go oh, well that's that's done well no musa remember truth is what the group believes he says "Well." That, that's okay, but I'm Muslim. I follow Muhammad. I don't follow you. And Jesus just repeated his words. If you want to have life in this world, but also for eternity, believe in me.
0: When Musa woke up from his dream, he really believed in his heart that Jesus could heal him. And he prayed for that. And he was healed. But for Musa, it still wasn't really an option to follow Jesus and believe in him as a savior. That wasn't what his people believed and it wasn't what he could believe. But in the months that followed, Musa had two more dreams where Jesus was calling him to believe and he started to feel unsettled about what it all meant. And around that same time, he decided to leave his village and finish his education in a big city.
2: And so he went and studied in another city outside of where his people live, where there were Christians. He met one of these Christians and saw the Bible was open to John three sixteen, And he saw these words that, if anyone believes in him, they'll have eternal life. He said, I, Jesus said those things to me in my dream. Long story short, Musa becomes a follower of Christ, baptized within a couple of months. And that's really when the problems began, because he went home and told his family of what took place, told his village. And the village elders pulled him in front of the group and beat him so hard on the side of the head, you can still see the indentations uh, 30-something years later. And he never lived among his people again. There would be these delegations from his people to blot out the shame. He's riding along in a motorcycle one day. People lift up a rope as he's driving by, catch him on the chest, knock him unconscious. He's in hospital for a month, but he lives. One Easter, they went to his home and burned his home down. He came home and saw the flames of his his house. Uh, Another time, they shot at him. They tried poisoning him and doing sorcery and all the different things that they'll do in West Africa.
0: And eventually, Musa decided to flee the country. Clearly his family was finding him in every city he tried to escape to. So it was time for a bigger move, and Musa ended up in America, where he met Chris. Chris had been medically evacuated from Mali twice in one year, and eventually his health issues made it impossible to stay in West Africa. So he got relocated to New York City, where there's a large West African population.
2: Well, several years after that, I took Somalian Christians with me back to Musa's village. And we shared the gospel with over a 100 people back in that village. When West Africans move out of their countries into cities abroad, they take on status as, as a big daddy or big mama is the best translation I can come up with. They are incredibly influential for reshaping what it means to be Wasalu or whatever ethnic group someone is a part of. And so Musa went from being the shame of society to being the honor of society because he was their representative in America. And so we went back and not with some sort of development project, but just under the cloak of the Big Daddy and uh, it helped that a lot of the people that wanted to kill Musa were now dead, but we went back under his cloak and we were able to have all this influence to present the truth of the gospel.
0: Within a few years, there have been more than 30 people baptized in Musa's village, and the first churches have been started among his people. And what's interesting is that the same group mentality that hinders the growth of the gospel can also open up the door to movements because when God gets a hold of just one person, he often gets a hold of their people too.
2: Musa's experience is, is very similar to a lot of people that are among the first who come to faith in Christ among their people. There's a huge price to pay. Uh, one of the men that we work with in New York is from a country called Burkina Faso, uh, just east of Mali and north of a country like uh, like Ghana and he came from a strong Muslim family. But he was the first one who received an education in a Western-type
3: school. My father wanted me to receive a good education. So when I was still young, he sent me to a boarding school in another village.
2: And it just so happened that he had a Christian roommate. He had no idea what a Christian was like, never seen one, met one, but here he is having a roommate at the school.
3: His name was Jonathan, and for a year I tried to dominate him. I tried to get him angry, to get under his skin. I really tried to show myself as more powerful or superior than him. But he kept loving me and forgiving me, and he was very kind. And because of his actions and his way of life and his words, he conquered me with his love.
0: Eventually, Yusuf couldn't take it anymore. He needed to know how Jonathan was able to live with such love and forgiveness. So he asked Jonathan to teach him how to be like him.
2: He says, oh, I can't teach you to be this way. The only way you can be like this is becoming a follower of Christ. Uh, This is how I have the power to act in, in this way. It's through Jesus. And so this began this exploration from my friend Yusuf, who eventually became a follower of Jesus.
3: I was 15 years old when I decided to follow Christ. I immediately went back home to tell my father about it. My father asked me three times what I meant, and three times I told him what Jesus had done in my life
2: he told this to his father, was father called for a family gathering. And when I talk family gathering, I'm not talking about these small like American-type family gatherings. There were 200 people in the family gathering around this huge courtyard. And the father says, here's the reason why we have come today. Yusuf, my 15-year-old son, would like to tell you a decision he has made. Well, Yusuf was so excited to share this opportunity of what he had what he'd done. And so he told people joyfully about his decision to follow Christ.
3: After that, my father got up and said, if there is a bad seed among us, it needs to be exterminated so it doesn't affect the rest of us. And then he ordered two of my brothers to beat me in front of my family.
2: And then Yusuf walked out of the village and he never returned. From that point on, as a 15-year-old, he left his home. He never saw his mother and father again. He ended up being homeless for 10 years, just struggling to make it, struggling with his identity because it had been stripped away. His identity was found in his belonging to the group, and the group had excommunicated him.
0: Yusuf spent 10 years struggling on the streets. If a friend or distant family member would host him, they would receive threats, saying that if they didn't kick him out, their house would be burned down. Yusuf was also dealing with a ton of unexplained illness. He couldn't figure out why he was always getting so sick until he learned that his family had been paying people to poison him.
2: He was so, so far gone uh, mentally and emotionally, he said, there's only, there's only a couple of paths for me. He said, tomorrow by this time, uh, I will go back to Islam just to have peace in my life again. Or the other option is I'm gonna kill myself to end this struggle and this pain, or Jesus is gonna have to do something.
0: That night he was sleeping on this cardboard mattress he had made for himself. And all of a sudden, the sky lit up with this bright light.
2: And this bright light just started coming towards him. And he could tell this light was a person. And a hand just reached out and physically grabbed Yusuf and lifted him.
3: I kept asking, who are you? Who are you? This finger dipped into the clouds and rode in the sky. Jesus Christ. From that moment, I realized that I didn't choose Jesus. He chose me. And no matter what people do to try to stamp out my joy or peace, my identity is found in one thing, and that is Jesus.
0: Since that dream, Yusuf's family has tried to kill him in many different ways, but he's remained strong in the Lord. Today, Yusuf is a pastor and has led hundreds of Muslims to Christ.
1: Freedom of religion is generally enshrined in the constitutions across West Africa, but the reality is that religious decisions have social implications. And these social implications are often meted out at the family and village level. So that when someone comes to Christ in West Africa from a Muslim background, he may not survive to see his next birthday. And it's not that he'll be dragged into court, he'll be taken care of by his own family, either poisoned or expelled or somehow cut off from any prospects of a a life in that community, unless he converts back to Islam. But we've seen that in West Africa, when someone is willing to take that risk and follow Jesus, it can be the beginning of a transformation for the whole community. I remember meeting one young Muslim background believer who had a deep gash in his forehead from where his uncle had struck him with a machete. When I asked him why he didn't leave his village, he said that despite how dangerous it was, he would not leave until his family knew Jesus. Well, that was more than a decade ago, and today there are more than 5,000 from his community who have come to faith in
0: Christ. These interior villages of West Africa weren't even on missionaries' radars a few decades ago, and today they're home to thousands of Muslim background believers. The gospel is coming to them, not in the booming Christianity of the coastal cities, but in the simple message of love and forgiveness lived out in daily rhythms. So when I think of West Africa, with its sprawling coasts and deep jungles and vast desert and hundreds of languages, it actually helps to think small because it's just one individual at a time from one tiny village or another that's turning this region upside down. This season of Maverick was sponsored by Global Gates. They're dedicated to reaching the ends of the earth through global gateway cities. For more information or to get involved, visit globalgates.info. To help support the Maverick podcast, consider giving monthly at themaverickpodcast.com.